0: think about the job, and once you've learned everything you're going to learn, and you've contributed what you're going to contribute, you have to be willing to take that risk to get out of your comfort zone and jump to something else, not just so certainly for you so that you can continue growing, but also for the organization so that they can make use of the investment that they put in you.
1: Welcome to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business podcast, where IT and digital leaders from around the world talk about their careers trends they've been seeing, and their vision for the future, personally, professionally, and otherwise. This podcast is made for people who are seeing how quickly the digital business landscape is evolving. Those who recognize that it takes a village of trusted advisors to navigate this ever-changing terrain. People who enjoy listening to high-level discussions surrounding what it means to be a leader, real-world examples of challenges faced, and industry-specific strategies leveraged to create exceptional business outcomes.
0: This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization, and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.
1: Good afternoon, listeners. This is David Wright, and I'm your host of the Disruptive Innovators, Champions of Digital Business podcast. And this afternoon, I am lucky enough to be joined by Winston Beauchamp. Winston, it's great to have you.
0: Thanks very much. Appreciate you having me here. Yeah. Tell
1: our listeners a little bit about your current role. Where are you now?
0: Sure. So I work for the Department of the Air Force inside the Department of Defense, and I am the Deputy Chief Information Officer for the Department of the Air Force. That includes both the United States Air Force and the United States Space Force under one department working for the Secretary of Defense. Wow.
1: It's such an honor to have you on, man. It really is. Thank you for your service to our our country. What's one piece of actionable advice you'll look to give our listeners today?
0: Well, if I look at the work that we're doing in the Department of the Air Force and the industry partners that we perform that work with, probably the single biggest trend I see being successful in, in getting digital transformation moving is a bias to speed. We operate within a Department of Defense mindset of sort of deliberate acquisition, deliberate transition for new technologies. We feel the need many times to test everything even if it is industry standard. And where we have been successful, we have adopted industry standards instead of delivering on traditional DOD standards. This is probably most seen in the IT world because that's the area that we consume industry services as opposed to inventing things ourselves. They're weapon systems, airframes, a lot of those are built for purpose, just for us, but many of the, most of the folks in the Air Force use IT that is no different from what is probably in your offices or in your homes. It's just integrated in a way that's unique and has a layer of security on top of it. But it's the same operating system, it's the same hardware, it's many of the same tools that you use to get work done, uh, whether it's building documents or collaborating online. And so to me, it makes sense for us to adopt some of the same methods that industry uses to transition those capabilities as fast as they come out, as opposed to trying to put weapon systems, testing and transition processes onto commercially available software.
1: Right, yeah, great advice, I love that. So Winston, tell me a little bit about how you got to this position you're in today. Where did you start out and how did you get
0: here? Sure, so I grew up in Pennsylvania, And I went to college at Lehigh University where I studied engineering, industrial engineering in this case. And I interviewed for jobs in that sector in the early 90s when we were really in a hiring freeze in a lot of areas, the economy wasn't doing great. And there'd been uh, very low levels of investment in some of the technology areas that traditionally would go through these boom and bust cycles for engineers. And so Many of my fellow classmates didn't find jobs in the field and had to do something different. I was lucky enough to get an interview with General Electric Aerospace, and I wound up working for them in that time frame. I worked for the company, but I was really working for a government customer. Didn't have any idea about it at the time of the interview, because of course, they don't tell you those things. They put me through a, a security clearance, and they hired me on and read me in on what I was to be doing. And my eyes got like this big, and I said, okay, fine. They went through a series of transitions themselves. They were G.E Aerospace was bought by Martin Marietta, and then that was bought by Lockheed to form Lockheed Martin. And so I worked in industry, uh, really enjoyed my time in industry. They treated me very well and put me through a master's degree, so I wound up with a master's in mechanical engineering from Villanova. But at the end of that cycle, I went on a rotational program to go support the government directly, sitting in the government footprint here in Virginia. And loved it so much that after my rotation was up, I wound up getting hired by the government and worked for them full-time. And I've been with the government ever since. So I started here, but I started out working for the intelligence community. And I worked for several different agencies in the IC for the first 20 years or so of, of my career and spent much of that time in highly classified environments. I worked applying my engineering degree on everything from Systems operations, largely in the space side of the world, but also doing systems analysis and designing future architectures. So, I've asked to do a number of studies on what the appropriate next generation architecture of space systems would be. I also, in that time, wound up alternating my jobs between space systems architecture and information technology. And so, I spent about four years as the chief engineer for the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency, building ground systems and user hardware and software that would allow the people at NGA to consume and exploit and create products from imagery and imagery products that came from both satellites and from airplanes and turn them into mapping products and intelligence products for our consumers around the world. And my career throughout the IC kind of alternated back and forth between IT and space. In 2012, I wound up taking a rotational assignment, another rotational assignment, to the Director of National Intelligence. And I spent three years working there as the Director of Mission Integration. The job there was to take the various intelligence disciplines and try to tie them together, to make them more closely collaborative and to work together to solve problems. And just enjoyed that immensely. When that rotational assignment was up, I wound up coming over to the Air Force to be the Deputy Undersecretary for Space inside the Air Force. That was really a merger of of those two roles because the space side had been part of my career, but on the intelligence community side, applying that knowledge over in the Air Force side, it was a good jump because it was just relevant enough and adjacent enough that I was able to leverage a lot of the experiences I've already had. And since a lot of the ground systems for space are very IT intensive, I could apply that experience as well.
1: I mean, it's mind-blowing stuff. I mean, really, really impressive. I always, as a techie and kind of a computer nerd, I always have a lot of respect for industrial engineers and people who went the way that you did. I ended up studying finance in college. Don't ask me why. I was like building computers as a kid and studying MCSE. And, you know, when it came time to go to college, I was like, I want to move to New York and make money. That was the young me. But I always wish I would have went into that or computer science. But I digress. I ended up in the right place.
0: You know, the technology changes fast enough that you can always jump back in and you will not have missed much more than everybody else is already in the field because it's progressing so quickly.
1: It's, that has been my experience. I lucked out. So really, really cool journey, Winston. I want to ask, what's one of the most important things you learned along the way, personally or professionally? And what was life like before learning it and after learning it?
0: Yeah. So as it turns out, the, one of the most important things happens to cross over both personal and professional, and it has to do with how humans operate and how we receive information and what our expectations are of how we transmit it. And it's that when you study human behavior, I was blown away when I was told that what I see as the color blue is not the same thing you see as the color blue, because it's just whatever somebody pointed at, that's blue. When you were a kid, that's what you associate with blue because we Mm. had to tie that knowledge into our neurons for it to become part of your memory. And everybody has a slightly different perception of color. And the same is true for how we experience the world and how we try to communicate it to others. You know, Other people don't receive information the way you intend it. And when we assume perfect transmission, we can get frustrated when we don't get the response that we expect. And we start to attribute motive, when in fact, a lot of time it's just because they're not receiving the data that you're sending in the same way you think you're sending it. The same is true in the other way around. What you're receiving may not be what that other person thinks they're sending to you. Yep. And so you have to have a certain amount of humility and you have to provide a buffer. Whether you're communicating a really complex technical issue to a, series, a set of your peers, where there tends to be a language and a rubric that allows you to communicate the nuance, or you're talking to your family, or your kids about something, and you realize that the way, if you convey something in a manner that to them is received as intensity that you don't maybe intend. So I think having that nuance, having that humility about it, and knowing that you're going to have to communicate. The lesson I learned from this is, say it different ways. Don't just repeat the same way that you've been saying it. Because if they didn't, if they only got 20% of it the first time, repeating it is not going to give them a different 20% if you just use the same words try to describe it in a different way, use an analogy, use a different, come at the problem from the other end and describe it the other way. And what you'll find is you'll get a much higher transmission rate of success if you do that. And in our strategic communications here, when we're talking about IT changes that are coming down the pike, and how they're going to affect people and their day-to-day lives, we feel like we're over-communicating and the people in the field tend to think we're under-communicating. So the lesson I take from that is, If you communicate about twice as much as you think you should, they're going to receive it about half as much as they think they should. So keep going. Even when you're blue in the face and you're sick of talking about this stuff, find new and interesting ways to communicate it. Don't do it all via email. Do some via town halls. Do some via postings online. Draw pictures. Communicate via interpretive dance. Find some way to get the message across that might be a little different from how you think it's perfectly clear the one way that you're putting it out, but that's because you're close to it. You've been working it. Others are hearing it the first time and they need uh, a little bit of context.
1: That's such great advice. And it, it reminds me, I'm trying to remember who it was, I think it was Stephen Michaels. He was a CTO at SEL, now VP of IT at Intermountain Health out in the mountain region. And he talked about the love languages and how relevant it is to family, obviously, but business as well how we're interacting and how people react differently from words of affirmation, acts of service, quality time, obviously physical touch isn't appropriate, but just that those, the different ways of communicating with people is significant. So I love your advice there. It's really, really relevant. I think now more than ever. And I think it's also important for me when I'm thinking about my understudies or my direct reports and my direct reports. Because you can only do so much via communication, even in those different styles, but, and you as an executive at the top, you're not going to be able to speak likely directly with someone down here all the time, right? It's a huge organization, the the Pentagon and, and the department you work in. So how am I coaching my people on these strategies so that they can implement them in a more personal manner? I think it's also something that I get out of that, what you just shared, for sure.
0: Yeah, I can tell them to my subordinate leaders to deal with their customers and their subordinates in a certain way, but it can be much more effective if you you show them. So I'm going to deal with you the way that I want you to deal with your folks, whether it's the people who work for you directly or the customers in the field who come to you for information or who need your help to help uh, something new transition into operations and you're modeling that behavior, they're much more likely to pay attention to what you do than to what you tell them to do.
1: Right. Just like 21 month old daughter. (laughs)
0: uh, (laughs) That's right. No.
1: So Winston, what about, uh, God knows I've had plenty of failures along the course of my career. What's the failure or hardship that sticks out in your mind as something you learn just a ton from over the course of your pretty epic career?
0: Yeah. When I was Still at NGA, I was the technical executive, which is kind of like a CTO at the agency level. And one of the jobs that I had was to work to conduct these major cross-community studies to figure out what the next generation of overhead imagery architecture would be. And I was working with a team of folks who understood requirements from people in the field who understood architectures and the systems themselves and how they worked and what the options were as well as people who did modeling and simulation to figure out what the performance were. And we received an option that was innovative and interesting, but which wound up being politically incompatible with something that another agency was already doing. We thought technically it was the right solution, but we were concerned that we wouldn't be able to get it through because of that overlap. We went I went with my gut and I went with the idea of promoting this option even though It had this. It was the best solution, but it had a fatal flaw of being politically contentious. We put it forward anyway. It crashed and burned miserably on that basis, and we basically had to throw it all away and start over the following year. And I was sure when I went into the director's office to explain to him that you know we had lost a year and had you know been unsuccessful in promoting the circuit, I thought for sure he would bench me and put somebody else in charge. And he said, "Well, don't worry about it. You'll do better next time." And I said, "You sure you want me, sir, to do this?" And he goes, "Oh." why would I waste all this valuable experience you just learned, right? You know where the pitfalls are now. You know mm-hmm. what to avoid. And he was a, he was a, a Navy guy. He was a, an admiral. And he goes, you know where the mines are, right? The mines in the harbor, you know where they are. So you know how to avoid them. And so he back in and he said, you're going to run it again. You're just going to do it from this perspective. And he gave me good guidance and I went forward. And the very next year we built an architecture that was proved all the way up the line and got signed off by the president and it became part of our budget. And so I'll never forget that advice, that failure is not a reason to sideline someone. It's a valuable experience that you use to build. And, it, and the other thing he said to me was, look, you've never failed. You've never ventured anything really big. You've never tried mm-hmm. anything really difficult. You've never taken a risk. And that tells me you left something on the table.
1: Yeah. If you've never failed, you've never innovated.
0: Yeah. So he said, if I or you in the future, if either of us were to sideline someone because of that failure you're you're doing two things one you're taking that valuable experience off the battlefield and two you're sending a message to your folks that says whatever you do don't take a risk because the boss is going to cut you off at the knees right. And that is not a message he wanted to send forward and it's something i've taken to heart ever since
1: doubting this from the rooftops at a lot of the uh, in a lot of the industries that we're working with currently so yeah that's the great lesson so, Winston, I want to talk a little bit more about your current role, kind of where you are today, your vision for the organization. Before we you know, shift gears into that, what is your favorite book or literary piece, either all time or right now, something you've read recently?
0: Yeah. So I'm reading, right now I'm reading a book on China from, the author's name is Economy, believe it or not. But it really details from their perspective, from the perspective of China, how they see the world, how they see muscle movements that they're promoting to develop their economy, as well as to promote their national security through partnerships and outward displays of strength. Their understanding of where their structural weaknesses are in their society, Mm -hmm. as well as where they think the West is vulnerable. But it does it from a societal perspective, not from a military political perspective. And I appreciate the author's style because of that. It's helpful to understand the points of view of other people if you expect that you're going to have to counter movements that they're making in ways that perhaps you wouldn't get if all you saw was the outward effect of, of their action. And yeah. so in terms of nonfiction, that's my current read. I have you know, escapist fiction, as everybody does in the science fiction or fantasy world that allow me to shift gears once in a yeah. while.
1: Love it. What about So this, you got to tell me, I'm a sci-fi guy myself, favorite sci-fi book of all time?
0: If you go to all time, I have to go with the classics. I'm a huge fan of Asimov, Foundation Series, as well as Heinlein. And between the two of them, they've pretty much been able to do everything that needs to be done in that arena. With uh, Frank Herbert and Dune series as a, a distant third, in my view. A lot of people like that style better, but I'm, I stick to the ones that talk about the issues with respect to, if you do this, here's what then happens. Here are the (laughs) extensions of that in society that will uh, cause all these second and third order effects that you might not have anticipated.
1: Yeah, I love it. Seems relevant to your your career too. Very cool. Well, no, thanks for sharing that, Winston. So let's talk about, so you're the deputy chief information officer of the United States Department of the Air Force. What does that look like today? What's your vision for the institution? Tell us a little bit about that.
0: Right. So the office of the CIO is responsible for strategy, policy, architecture, for all of the information technology at the enterprise level for the department. So we're in the process of a huge generational transition from a situation where we have information technology at the program level to one where we design and build it collectively so that it operates at the enterprise level. This means instead of an airplane with a computer attached to it for logistics or maintenance purposes, we're talking about an enterprise network that connects up all the systems so that we can coordinate their action. That is true whether you're talking about mission operations. It's true if you're talking about the business side, financial management, logistics, maintenance facilities, acquisition, uh, personnel, all that has to be rationalized as well because they largely run on separate systems. And a lot of them have to exchange data and they do it today through cumbersome interfaces and we're working to streamline those so that it can be real time. We're talking about the computer networks that people use for regular office automation. We've largely succeeded in collapsing them into a single network, at least at the unclassified level, so that we can share data, send email back and forth, collaborate virtually on tools like this so that we can can see each other and communicate. That part has largely been done. We need to take that same level of integration that we've achieved for collaboration and extend that to the business side and the mission side of the Department of the Air Force. And that means identifying all the networks that are out there, because we're nowhere near close to on one, identifying all the applications that we need to get our job done and how they could potentially be consolidated or hosted differently than the way they are today. So a big part of that is cloud migration, taking things that live on-prem in 185 bases around the world and putting them into the cloud so that multiple people can share them simultaneously so that they can be scalable so that they can shift gears quickly when you need to spin up a new capacity. That is a major muscle movement underway right now, moving things into the cloud. And we have a flagship cloud program called Cloud One that is hosted by three of the major hyperscale multi-cloud environments today. And then, but it's not just about cloud. In addition to collapsing the networks, migrating to the cloud, we're also looking at our security architecture. It's a big deal now when we look at cyber vulnerabilities, both government and industry, And so when you live in a world where many of your systems were built separately for separate platforms and weapon systems and sort of glued together into a network, you've got a lot of disparity, a lot of different solutions. And that means different computers and different software running different versions, not all of which are managed centrally and patched at the same time, right? So that means a lot of vulnerabilities, a lot of doors and windows for adversaries to try to come in. And we've got fairly robust security, but it's very time and manually intensive. And we think we can do better by leveraging some of the automated capabilities that industry have has developed. And we want to get to the point where we can make better use of that, both here at headquarters and around the world.
1: Wow. Very cool. We kind of covered a number. Of, so those would be the, some of the key initiatives you guys are focused on right now.
0: On the IT infrastructure side, yes. We're also looking at collapsing our data fabrics. So we have a number of data platforms right now, in addition to which we have applications that host their own data. And so you've got multiple copies, of the same data in multiple places. You've got synchronization issues between them. And so rationalizing our data fabric is a major thrust because to us, that's a key enabler to transitioning all of our systems as well as to delivering artificial intelligence at the appropriate places. Data is the lifeblood of AI. And so having that rationalized and well understood, it's also key to the security solution. If we're moving to a zero trust architecture, You better know where your data is and have it tagged appropriately and know who your people are. And so we keep coming back to the data piece as a a core center point for a lot of our initiatives. That's smart. I mean, it's so crucial right now to having
1: that single source of truth. So I want to ask you about some of the biggest challenges you're facing now. And I got to say that I have so much respect for guys like yourself, like working in IT and digital business as an executive is hard enough working with the, in a financial institution or a health system or whatever it might be. And I guess they all have their nuances of, of significance. I mean, like health, you're dealing with people's lives, but like, I think about working with the department of defense and like our country's security. And it's like, it feels like I get a little anxiety, like thinking about it. So I just, but yeah, so tell me what are some of the biggest challenges you guys are facing right now?
0: Yeah. So one of the biggest, to be really honest with you, is when you've been so successful for as long as we have in DoD, it's very difficult to convince people that there's a mandate to change because it's what we've done, we've found a way to make it work. But there have been other priorities other than IT modernization for some time. And so we find ourselves in a situation where we've got systems that are very, very old and our legacy from a couple of decades ago in many cases. And we have modernized components, right? We swapped out routers and switches and firewalls and things like that, but the design, the network design at a lot of bases is pretty old. And so we're engaged in a flagship modernization program called Enterprise IT as a Service that's intended to first re- revamp our security architecture and our help desk architecture, and then second to go through and, and modernize our base area networks. And to do that requires a degree of coordination that's challenging when you've got <clears throat> systems that are of a great deal of variety of, of age and version and level of maintenance. It's a challenge. And so the, probably the, the biggest driver of that challenge is scale. When you've got an organization of 720,000 people at 185 bases around the world, the amount of coordination you have to do is staggering. And you're, it's very difficult to get everybody onto new versions very quickly. And so you have to put a lot of effort into planning before you go ahead and execute. And that uh, takes a lot of time takes a lot of effort and it takes a lot of collaboration between people uh, on in different time zones.
1: Yeah, I imagine. So, and how about like, how do you guys, because now I'm like, how does the department of defense, are you allowed to work with partners? Obviously you work with solution providers, but do you guys work with partners on stuff like that? I'm just curious.
0: By partners, do you mean foreign partners or do you mean industry partners?
1: industry industry partners, like for example, like a Deloitte or an Accenture or a Disruptive Innovations, like do you have, are you allowed to have people support you on those types of initiatives?
0: Yeah. I mean, so our military and civilian government contractor staff is fairly limited, although folks would look at our numbers and maybe not say that, but when you spread it over all the missions and locations we're asked to do it in, it spreads pretty thin, pretty quickly. And so a lot of the actual delivery of capability comes from industry partners. And so in addition to the prime contractor acquisition providers who are actually developing and delivering the solutions, we also have close support contractors who sit in our staff, in our office with us that help us plan and execute these activities. Here from the headquarters, of course, we're not pulling wires and turning wrenches. We're, we're building architectural plans. We're building, we're writing policy. We're helping to coordinate activities across the department. And to do that, we have uh, contractor support in-house as well.
1: Cool. I was just curious. What about, here's a good question, because I think this will be an
0: interesting one. What are some of the best practices you and your team follow? In terms of our internal office dynamics or working with the department?
1: Yeah, I would say in regard to leadership and in your internal team.
0: Right. So the role of the CIO in an organization of, of our size and in particular in the, in the CIO is prescribed in statute in terms of the authorities that a CIO has. And hmm. so it's pretty clear what we're supposed to be doing. We're not always resourced to the level We can do all the things we need to do. Right. There's quite a few sort of mandatory compliance activities that we have to execute. And then we also have these initiatives that we're pushing to try to modernize the architecture. And so we know that most of the work is going to get done through others. And so working with our partners in the, for example, we have an acquisition element that works inside the Air Force Acquisition Organization, but who is kind of assigned to us to work IT initiatives, as well as working with our operational partner, who's the lead major command on this, which is happens to be Air Combat Command. Working with that partnership, we are able to sort through everything from how do we build the budget for the coming year? How do we design a transition plan for a new capability that's being delivered? And how do we decide what direction we want to take the architecture in? We have to work very closely with those partners. And so one of the shifts over the past couple of years has been the in-house staff here is small, and so they can't be in the middle of all of those activities. Let's figure out what are the roles and responsibilities of each of those partners so that we don't all feel like we have to be in everybody else's decision-making cycle. Let's figure out what has to be made by the CIO shop and what can be done, what can be delegated to folks in the field to execute on their own. And then we stay out of the business that we've delegated. You don't go back in and look over their shoulder and and check their math. we try to do is hold them accountable for outcomes. So if we say, hey, we're moving in this direction, we're going to adopt this new technology. Your job is to build a plan to integrate it. We hold them to the outcome as opposed to, well, that's not how I would have done it. That's one of the core principles, getting out of the execution business and staying focused at the strategy level, Keeping, giving guidance and then providing an opportunity for folks to give us status and feedback. It's a shift that's taken place and it's one that I think has been successful, but it's one that always requires work. It requires building strong relationships amongst all those parties. And as happens, people move on the new jobs. As military folks get reassigned, you have to reestablish those connections and keep those building. It's an ongoing process.
1: Sure. Yeah. But great, great practice for sure. How about any innovative technologies that you're really excited about that will serve to support the vision that we were talking about earlier?
0: Yeah, I'm really excited about Zero Trust as a baseline security architecture because it enables us to take advantage of one of our strengths. And it also forces us to do some things that we have to do for other reasons anyway. And I personally, I feel that we're strongest as a Department of Defense when the services are working together at something. And Zero Trust happens to be something that the DOD has uh, been a very strong advocate for. And so at that level, they have a pilot process and a a prototyping activity that's underway that'll help flesh out some of the challenges that we expect to see. Zero Trust is a concept that says, Mm -hmm. look, I'm not going to try to just protect the perimeter of my network and then allow you to do whatever you want once you're inside, because there's a danger there that folks can get inside and then maneuver laterally and take whatever they want and get out. And so instead it says, I'm going to assume that my network is porous and I'm going to protect the applications and the systems that hold the data and tag the data and protect it where it lives. And that this is a concept, right? And, but it has technical solutions associated with it, as well as practices that you have to put in place. And it's one that has a bunch of advantages for us. We spend a lot right now on maintaining base area network perimeter protections, and we believe that we have the potential to collapse a lot of networks if we can use zero trust principles to provide additional protection levels to the data where it lives. And that's key to us because if we don't have to provide separate networks at multiple security levels for multiple programs, that's a lot of cost we can take out of the process. Sure.
1: Yeah, and a lot of those firewalls nowadays can be even yeah it can be moved to the cloud too. So very cool. I, I love zero trust. So it's great to hear that you guys are taking that step. So as we come to a close here, what do you think? I mean, we kind of touched on on some of the things, but any big opportunities you see for the either the DoD or the Air Force in the future in in your realm?
0: Yeah. So one of the big opportunities in the future that I think is going to act as a real catalyst for collective action is the department's push for joint all-domain command and control. It's known as JADC2, and it's a concept that says instead of fighting with each individual weapon system acting on its own or trying to integrate them with chat rooms and whiteboards, I want there to be machine speed interactions between systems so that we can constantly exchange information about what each platform is doing so that we can apply our resources in the optimal way. If we strike a target and we don't need to send another package against it, great, we'll go redirect to something else. If we think that one of our bases is vulnerable, we'll try to pick up and move to another place before they wind up getting in trouble. And basically it's a, it's a very dynamic concept that is much faster in turn time than the manually based processes of the past. Mm-hmm. We, our advantage typically has been speed. And so if we can accelerate decision time, we can help to counter some of the advantages that others, other adversaries might have in the future about based on location. And so there's a lot of work underway here. And we believe that the Air Force's response to the JADC2 mandate, which is a program called ABMS, or Advanced Battle Management Service, is going to provide a mechanism for that collaboration and coordination between weapons platforms. It's a new way of doing battle management, command and control. It is not a single system that's gonna run everything. It is a way for the systems to interact with each other and exchange data so that they can make better decisions. And that the planners and that the operators at the combatant commands can make better decisions on how to employ these systems. But it gets us out of the Navy's doing this and the Air Force is doing that and the Army's doing this. It get to the point where the joint commanders at the combatant command level can make better decisions faster with the best data of what's going on. So really, uh, kind of like zero trust in the sense that it's something that moves forward a lot of the key principles that we, of things that we have to do anyway, and it gives them an organizing principle to rally around. so I think that because as it would make sense that having the ability to collaborate between systems requires faster networks that are connected to each other. And so those are all things we want to do anyway. It has to be secure so that we're doing that anyway with zero trust. It has to be uh, operating on a series of interfaces that are well understood standardization is good, right? These are all the core principles that we need to put into place to achieve the, the, the aims of JADC-2. And it's something that we're doing here in the Department of the Air Force to can better connect our weapons systems to our information technology enterprise.
1: Right. And the data, right? It's all about the data. Very cool stuff. I mean, I learned so much today. I really appreciate you, Winston. Last question. If you could go back five or 10 years in time, what advice would you give your younger self?
0: Yeah, I would say don't fall in love with your position. Don't treat every job as a rotational assignment and have a goal to leave it better than you found it. Because I found that if you're in a job too long, you start to think of that job as a personal possession instead of a public trust for which you are the temporary steward. And so I've not been in a job for longer than four years over the course of my career. And I think that's a good thing. And I think More folks should think of their, I think folks coming into this business tend to think, well, I'm going to work my way up the ladder until I find the perfect position for me and then I'm going to stay there. And that has problems. First of all, there's no such thing as the perfect job, right? All jobs have frustrations. But while you're in that job and while you're getting that experience, you're learning, you're evolving, you're growing. And at some point, you've contributed everything that you're going to contribute in that position and you need to go do something else because you need to leverage what you've learned instead of just storing it up. I think people uh, say, hey, I have 10 years of experience doing in this job. And, I, and sometimes I look back and I, I say, well, do you really? Or do you have one year of experience 10 times in a row? Think about the job. And once you've learned everything you're going to learn and you've contributed what you're going to contribute, you have to be willing to take that risk to get out of your comfort zone and jump to something else, not just so certainly for you so that you can continue growing, but also for the organization so that they can make use of the investment that they put in you by giving you increased responsibility or increased scope. And so I, going back probably a little longer than your time frame of five or 10 years, but if I went back 15 or 20, I would have told my younger self, keep that rotational program that you started in, keep thinking about things that way. And you won't get stuck with this mentality of, I just got to find that right job. And then I'm golden. You're never set. You should never be satisfied with what you're doing now because you're going to be a different person on the other side of it. Right. Yeah. I love
1: that. Because I used to, as a younger executive, I used to think like, I'll be okay when. It's like yeah. that, like, yeah. and that, yeah. that finish line keeps moving. And it's like, if you think about things that way, it's almost like it's hard to ever be satisfied too. Yeah. So coming from a place where I'm a steward, that's just, you know, it takes the ego out of it too. It's just right. like, I'm going to show up, I'm going to add value and then kind of go where I'm wanted and needed. I, it's, I love that advice. Winston, thank you so much for being on today. It was an absolute pleasure.
0: Thank you for having me and to your audience for listening.
1: Yeah. And to all our listeners, thank you for tuning in. I hope you have a great weekend and we will catch up with you next week. Thank you for listening to the Disruptive Innovators Champions of Digital Business Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five star review and subscribe to enjoy future episodes.
0: This episode is brought to you by Disruptive Innovations, a leading tech consulting firm that helps enterprise organizations with their IT strategy, process optimization and workflow improvement. Contact them and find out more at disruptiveinnovations.net.